Hi there, Matthew here. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to let you know about an exciting offer we currently have at Burn Production Services. If you're an event organizer with an upcoming corporate conference, sales meeting, or experiential event, this one's for you. For a limited time, we're covering the shipping costs for your next event to help make your production a whole lot easier and more cost-effective. So be sure to check us out at burnproductionservices.com and enjoy the benefits of this exclusive offer. Okay, let's get into the episode. It's our responsibility to actually make sure that we also choose the clients that fit what we want to do. So it's not only that we look for clients that give us business, but we want to work with the right clients that actually support what we want in our business. Right before this podcast, I had a call and I said to the client in all transparency, I said, listen, we can do your guest registration, but it's not what we love. Our love is when the lights go on and when we can be on stage and when we can coach speakers and when we can do a stage production. And he really appreciated that. He was like, yeah, that's great. I hear so often that companies can do everything. Welcome to Production Value Matters, the business event podcast, brought to you by Burn Production Services. Here, we explore the different ways business events can bring value to your organization, the latest technological advances in the event space, as well as providing you with actionable strategies to make a business event a success. Let's create an exceptional event experience. Welcome to another episode of Production Value Matters, the business events podcast. Today, I'm joined by Francisca Wekeser, CEO and co-founder of the very creative firm in LA. Native to the Netherlands, her career has seen her go across Europe all the way over to Shanghai and Beijing, and now in Hollywood, where her business has been thriving for almost eight years. Welcome, Francisca. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So talk to me about your career so far. How are your motivations changed in the time to- since you started? So I started like 14 years ago, I think. I started in the lens, just actually with my studies in marketing and Chinese, and then got an internship at a event marketing agency. And then at some point kind of set up a company in China. And I was like, hey, you know what? Maybe I can just help them out. I speak Chinese. Like they're just starting. It was the World Expo that was coming up in 2010 in Shanghai. So I kind of went over to their office then in Germany. They had an office in the Netherlands and in Germany. So I went to Germany and then this gentleman walks up in the middle of like that we're just having a coffee. And he's like, are you that girl that speaks Chinese? Yes, good, because you're going to work for us in China. So that kind of just started it. And I was like, what? I thought I was just for like, if I can help you guys with like some translation or something. So that kickstarted my career in China. I started working for an event marketing agency. It was great. We did the World Expo. The Netherlands had a pavilion there. They also had a city pavilion that I ran. Then I kind of needed a break. I went back to the Netherlands, started freelancing. And then they were like, hey, I think you like China too much. And the company was right. So I moved back again, stayed there for another three and a half, four years. And then I was like, you know what? I need to go and check out what the US is doing. So then decided with a friend of mine who's a creative director and show director to start a company here in in LA. And that's now, as you were saying in my intro, eight years ago. Wow. And so what was it that originally drew you to China? Obviously, you were skilled and ready and able to help them. What was it on a personal level that sort of interested you in going to China? So I was raised bilingual with German. And I think because of my dad being German, I always had a love for cars. 
So I always loved all the beautiful cars that are in Germany, of course. Then I was like, you know what? I only need kind of Japanese and Italian. And then if I speak those, I kind of can rule the world on an automotive level. And then I found a study that you can do in Japanese, Chinese, and Arabic. Then I ran to my parents. I was like, oh my God, I found my study. I'm going to study Japanese. And then actually, my very smart father said, you know what? If you're deciding to do such a language, then maybe choose Chinese because the economy is kicking off. It's great. Like Shanghai is booming. So do that. So I then actually went for eight weeks to China, did an intense language course there. I loved the whole culture. I loved how a family, I stayed with a family for eight weeks. I loved how they were living together, how much respect they have for each other. I mean, they pushed their kids. Back then it was really like one child policy. They had a son. So it was a lot of go, go, go. You need to like, yeah, get a good life. But I, I loved it and then decided to, to study it. And then I studied it for four years. And in between, I actually was a lot in China too. And then kind of by accident, I came into the event world through the Olympics in Turin. The Holland Heineken has the Holland Heineken house. And I signed up as a volunteer. So I was there for a couple of weeks and I was just like, this is insane. This is great. Like these big events, like how have I never seen this before in my life? So kind of that combined with then my studies of Chinese and marketing, then kind of kickstarted it. Yeah. So my first event that I then did in China was for the Volkswagen Group China, where we introduced 13 vehicles of all the brands. So Bugatti, Lamborghini, Audi. And I called my dad and I said, I made it like I'm doing cars in China. <laughs> now what? It's super cool. Excellent. And so then what was it that sort of drew you back into North America and Hollywood? I mean, admittedly, was it the weather? Okay, the weather is definitely nice. I mean, I grew up in the lens where there's a lot of rain. We don't have this gorgeous sun. Like even today, it's December 6th and it's beautiful weather. I don't have to wear a jacket. So I think that's for sure a plus. I didn't even realize that the weather was this good until I actually moved here. And then now if it rains in one of the 30 days, everybody's upset. No, so yeah, it kind of like the work mentality in China definitely was, I don't want to say tough, but it is for a certain lifestyle. And when I moved there, I loved it. Like 16 hours straight working. We then went off to like a club or a restaurant that you would see your clients there. So there was a lot of like, I always describe it like Shanghai was, I think, New York on steroids. Like it was never stopping. So I think that kind of was a little bit where I was like, hmm, I don't know, there must be more than this. And on the other end, I really wanted to own my own business. I didn't want to become a competitor to the agency that I worked for because I had a really good time with them. I really loved working there. So I was like, okay, becoming a competitor is not what I want. Going back to Europe is also not what I want yet. So then kind of like, I don't want to say the only continent then kind of let's, is still there. For me, at least then to choose from was the US. So then kind of the only the question that we had was, okay, are we doing New York or LA? And then we were like, yeah, you know what? Let's try LA. A lot of fashion was moving, a lot of tech was moving to LA. So there was like a lot of things happening. And even now you see World Cup is coming 2026. Olympics are coming 2028. So there's a lot developmentally happening in LA, which is great. Yeah, excellent. And so what would you generally say is the mark of an excellent event? And why? I mean, you mentioned that ambition of doing very high end automotive events in China as a sort of a place that you wanted to get to. So after those kind of experiences, how has that colored your opinion of what an excellent event is and why is that? 
an interesting question because I think you can see it in a lot of different ways. Like there's not one perfect event. We do a lot of corporate events. So we do a large scale corporate events, but we also do shows and like really big show productions in the festival world. So I think even looking there, I think the perfect event is like obviously when your client is happy. I mean, yes, that's that. But we've had it where we were in China that we actually had people in the audience that had to cry from video content that we produced. And I was like, oh, my God, I will never forget this in my life that storytelling wise, they were intrigued by a story that we were trying to tell in seven minutes. And like in the middle of where we were, like three and a half minutes, they actually had tears just because they really liked the story. And this was a story about a beetle. So about Volkswagen Beetle. So it's interesting, you know, like it's not even that we were showing something about animal rescue or something that will draw people uh, very quickly to emotions. But we recently did a, it's called the Product Vision Day for Fisker. So for an electric car company here in LA. And I think there for us, we checked all the boxes for ourselves where we were like, this was an amazing event. It looked great. We were very innovative in our creative thinking. We created a whole storyline for people when, as they arrived, they would go through a tunnel. So everything made sense. And then the whole execution of it, within the time, and of course, like within the rehearsals and everything that we had, yeah, it was just great. And I think that's just where, when you feel that whatever you have planned and that you wanted to create actually happens, and then you also enjoy it while you're doing it, I think that's really something where you're like, okay, that was a really good event, especially the enjoying part. We really care about the people that we work with. And for us, it's very important that everybody feels appreciated, but it also really enjoys it. So as soon as for us, the radios go on, one of the last things that we say before we start the show is, guys, make sure you enjoy it. Excellent. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the very creative firm. So what specifically do you do and what's part of your big mission statement in creating that company? Yeah. So we position ourselves as an event marketing and show production agency. And with that, we actually say or show also that we have a high level of creativity. We're strategic and our goal is to the next year also produce them in the highest quality that is available in the market. I think that for us is really where we see ourselves and also in the events that we do and the productions that we do, we also show that we are. Our name is The Very Creative Firm, and that's also something that we have to show and that we have to live by because otherwise we should have chosen a different name. But we love that name. and We also love that we can show that creativity. So for us, we do a couple of various things. So we work a lot for corporate clients, and then we work a lot in the festival world. And then we also do video production and commercials. This is something that grew during COVID. I think we all forgot about it, but it happened a few years ago. <laughs> Remember that moment that we all were inside? And we then actually chose to develop more the video production commercial part because it has this incredible creative element to it as well. So for us, uh, strategy, that we have the strategic thinking, that we have the creative thinking, that we know how to listen to our clients and then actually executing it in the highest production quality is really what we want to drive for in all of these different elements that we're working in. If this is if we're at a festival or for a corporate client or in a video production. And then our clientele goes from nonprofits to yeah, big corporates like Louis Vuitton, BMW, Fisker. So still some automotive in there too. And then Insomniac is is a very good client of ours too that we love to do festivals with. Yeah. That's great. So 
as you mentioned, the pandemic happened. It shifted everybody who was doing live event things into video production, which for a part of the industry was an easy stepping stone. And I think you would probably agree that for a very creative firm, that was sort of a natural progression. And it's certainly here to stay. And so my question is, what kind of similarities do you see between video production and live event production that people don't always realize? Yeah, I think it all starts with this one idea that someone has. And that can start in like, is it a video or is it an event or is it both? Like, do you want both things to come together? For us, it was a natural growth and a natural step towards that direction of video and commercials because we already were doing so much video for our clients and we were already kind of doing that. So growing that was easy on a creative level. So when then a client is like, okay, well, I want to create a video and I want to show this new product. We're like, okay, well, let's think about it. What's the story? What's the concept? How are we going to do that? And then productionally, I don't want to say like, it's almost the same because it's not because with video, you need to have a lot of like the camera people and you need to have a good DP, you need to have a good director, but it is making sure that you have the right people and that you have a quality wise, very good people around you that can support that. So for us, when we look at the two productions of if it's a live event or if it's a video production, for both, we have a, I don't really want to say like a standard template, but it is like, we are like, okay, these are the steps that we follow. We work at our creative. If it's in a storyboard for a video production, or if it's in a creative concept for an event, once those two are confirmed, that's when we go into production. And for a video production, it's finding the right art department. And for an event, it's finding the right AV hardware supplier for the particular event that we want to do. So I think it's just making sure that you think about all the elements. And that's something that we learned when we were working in event production, because there are so many unknowns that you have. So with the years of experience, it was a logical step to actually then also kind of look at, okay, what is video production doing? And so where do you see the market going sort of post-pandemic? We'll see thought leaders on LinkedIn and various other networks and in associations either saying, we got to go all the way back to live, or we got to shift everything into virtual and hybrid and all of those kind of things. I am of the personal opinion, and I said this to somebody the other day, that it's sort of like that scene in Austin Powers where he realizes that the 50s were all sorts of responsibility and the 60s were all about freedom, and now he's really glad that he lives in a world where it's freedom and responsibility. I'm particularly interested in sort of your market take on video production and moving a lot of what was typically event centric content and putting it into the world of video production and whether or not that's a good or a bad thing or where the market's going with that. Yeah. I also can't really look into the future. And I think that's where if we now just look at what our clients want, definitely everybody's expecting, especially I think maybe here also in LA, but anywhere in the world, they're expecting a higher quality. They're expecting like if they do an event and they have a massive LED wall, because nowadays nothing is small anymore. Everybody has massive LED. So massive LED means there needs to be big content. Content needs to work well. We all need to then have very good working media servers so that we can actually run all this content. And that's, I think for a client, it's often like, okay, but I just want to have an LED wall that's 80 feet wide. Okay, great. But you also have the budget that actually can support that and that you can run the media servers. If you hire us and we do your 
video content, you need to also have the budget for that because and the time, like even the rendering of something like that takes days. And I think that's where the shifting is interesting, but it's also then like almost the education of the client where you're like, okay, are they open to listening to us where we're like, if you want to do this 80 feet LED wall, you need to have proper time to for us to actually produce this. You can't just do one rehearsal day and then say, there's a couple changes on the content. There's just no time. Simply, there's no time to then do that. And I think that's what we, if I look at like when I did things in China, the education portion of that was massive. And then now that that things are, I don't really see things shifting or moving because we're on a live element. We're still busy and we're getting busier. And after COVID, it went a little bit this and now it's going sky high. But it is more and more clients get more experienced and they see things from other companies and then sometimes don't completely realize what kind of budget goes with that. And that's sometimes like harder for us to explain. And then in terms of the shifts, yeah, for us, we're really happy that we can offer both because it really makes us yeah, special. And we have that niche that we can offer both. We can do a commercial for a client at the same time that we can run a live event for them. And in that sense, we understand their brand completely. Absolutely. That educational piece has certainly been one of the bigger challenges in the industry as people are coming out of the pandemic and trying to figure out where to spend money, how to spend money appropriately. Do you find that when you go to a client and you try to educate them on a very similar thing that we are constantly educating clients about, which is, okay, 80-foot LED screen is fantastic. But how are you building that content and what are you investing in that? Do you find that that actually pushes that client away from that kind of production value and then sort of defaults them back to, oh, well, let's just do two screens and a podium kind of thing? Yeah, I don't want to say it pushes them away. It's always this hard part of like, they want something different, but they have the same budget. So we do a show for a client. We've been doing it for a couple of years. and they kind of are always looking for that renewal element to it, but then they don't have the budget that we can renew because so much of the budget goes to F&B. So much of budget goes to the venue. Yeah, if you choose um, a very special venue, it's going to cost you money. And often these very special venues, or even if it's a convention center, they say, okay, well, you have to work with this AP hardware supplier so we can negotiate. We can make a deal. We can't be like, hey, guys, can we get this and this, or can we maybe exchange these and these lights for this and this? So I don't think that we're really pushing them away. I think it's also just for us as a company, it's our responsibility to actually make sure that we also choose the clients that fit what we want to do. So it's not only that we look for clients that give us business, but we want to work with the right clients that actually support what we want in our business. Right before this podcast, I had a call and I said to the client in all transparency, I said, listen, we can do your guest registration, but it's not what we love. Our love is when the lights go on and when we can be on stage and when we can coach speakers and when we can do a stage production. And he really appreciated that. He was like, yeah, that's great. I hear so often that companies can do everything. And of course, I mean, if I need to arrange valet for you, sure, I'll call a valet company. <laughs> but for us, like we love that component that we can do on stage because that's where we feel that we can tell the right story. So going back to your question, I don't really see pushing them away. I think it's just for us trying to keep on pushing 
that we can steer them in the right direction. Even for the client that I was just describing, still there, we're trying to push as much creativity in there or entertainment as we can as what they want and to try and stay away of that, well, two screens and a podium because that's just what we all not want, right? We all want these other cool setups. So yeah. Yeah. Again, it kind of goes into the right fit. And I love how you mentioned that because I think there are a lot of people pre-pandemic and a lot of organizations who were approaching the market as we are everyone's fit. Our solution works for everybody and we'll take more and more and more and more. And one of the things that I've noticed in the industry over the last two or three years now has been that a little bit of hyper-specialization where like pre-pandemic, we would have said, yeah, yeah, we're a valet company too. But now we're A, saying, no, 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 I'm not a valet company. I am this company and we do this and we do it really well. And if you're the right client for this, we're going to be the best of friends. But otherwise, if you're looking for a valet company only, please go talk to the valet company. And I think that's a really great thing that's happened to the industry, that hyper-specialization. And I think a lot of companies across the board, from the smallest scale all the way to the top, have really started to hone in on that best fit client and trying to get that. And I find that a lot of organizations who don't do that are continuing to struggle post-pandemic. Anyway, interesting business, not that I thought. Yeah, but it's also sometimes scary, you know, I think for businesses and even for us too, like to say no to a client that you're like, oh, it could actually give us revenue. We could actually use that because, you know, we don't have so much going on then and then. But it's that moment where you kind of have to stick to your plan and you have to be like, no. We had someone else asking us like, yeah, you guys do event documentation. Oh, okay. So can you arrange a photographer? No. Technically, we're a show production agency. So we do event documentation because we want to make sure we have good marketing material at the end and that our client has good marketing material. And because we feel that we have the right taste that we can make a cool after movie. Sure. But to then call me for a photographer? No. Just go on thumbtack or whatever <laughs> website and find a photographer and brief them yourselves you don't need me for that and that's also like a waste of time so i think in that sense there's a lot where companies need to try to stick to their plan and just also don't be scared to say no yeah absolutely and there are so many times here, like what was the meme or not the meme but the expression that we used to say back in 2018 oh let me google that for you and there was always so much pressure in this industry to say, well, no, 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 that's an opportunity to get in with a client. I don't think it that's true anymore, that it's almost like the old white labeling practice in the agency world where I used to turn to people and say, you know, people can Google me. They know where I am. I have a LinkedIn profile. So for you to pretend that everybody who's working on this team is in your in-house team and give them email addresses, it always seemed like you were trying to pull the wool over the client's eyes and there's much more transparency in the industry, which I, yeah, I that's true. Enjoy. Yeah. So let me talk about your process a little bit, because I'm always fascinated by different processes across the industry. So when you meet with a client for the first time, like what are the two main questions you ask at the start and why do you ask those questions? The first two questions, I mean, it kind of varies to if we get on board already for a brief or not. So I think one of the big things that we always ask is, what do you want? I mean, I mean, this is almost like a standard question, right? Like, what is your objective? But how often, I don't know if that has happened to you too, but like, how often do we receive a brief and there's no objective in there? How do you want us to come up with a concept? This happened a lot in China where actually we would make a brief for a client. 
So we would actually just have a call or we would have a meeting and we were like, okay, well, there's no briefing. So let's make this together and make sure that we understand what you want so that we can then create it. And I think that's even for, yeah, when we also created one of our shows for for Fisker that we did, that's kind of how we got started with them. We were in touch with them a year before. They had a couple of other ideas. They're like, sure, we can help you with this and this. And then at some point when this idea came of a product vision day, we were like, okay, but what what do you guys want? What do you want to show? What's going to be there? How many people? And then while you're talking, you kind of hear, oh, okay, so it's mainly focused for live stream. Okay, good. Well, that's important because that means that we need to have Obviously, we need to have the hardware and the cameras, but we need to have this focus point of the speakers and we need to make sure that it's attractive for a live feed so that for YouTube, when people are watching, that's a complete different story almost than when you're not doing it live or like not live streaming it, but you're only doing it for a live audience. But yeah, the objective portion is very important. And I don't want to say kind of it goes then together with the budget, but the budget is very important. Just... Now, when I was on a call with a new client, I was like, yeah, well, then we'd love to get a quote from you. And I was like, okay, well, what is your budget range? Because for us, it's if you're scared to give me a budget, because I feel that that's something with clients that happens that they're like, I don't want to give them a budget because then, you know, like maybe we're too high or we're too low or whatever. And I'm like, no, but we both are in the same business. And if you want an agency to help you out, you have to also from a client side be transparent. So Just now, I also just said like, hey, just give us a ballpark. Then we know how big or small we need to think. Then we know what skill we need to think because sometimes an after movie can look amazing. And then they're like, yeah, sure. But that was like $100,000. Okay, well, you guys did a great job on an after movie because this looks way more. So how do you even do that? So I think that's kind of where it's the objective so that we know creatively what we need to do. And then it's the budget range because we've too often had it that we were too far away from what a client wanted. And then you kind of need to start over, which is fine, but then you lose so much time that often also a client doesn't have. And also for us, like just time costs money. Hi there, Matthew here again. Great job making it to the middle of the episode. If you're enjoying what you're hearing right now, remember to give us a follow. And if you really like it, drop us a review as well. Let's get back to the episode. I remember going to an industry event many years ago, pre-pandemic, where the speaker asked a bunch of meeting planners and organizers in the room, what's their most dreaded question? And I swear to God, every single one of them screamed out in unison, what's your budget? And I looked at them and said, why is that such a nasty question to ask? And they were like, well, because you're trying to figure out how much money to take off of me. And I went, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out how you perceive this event and how important it is and what you have to invest in it. Because I know what you're looking at when you're Google searching cool events that we could try out for our next sales meeting. And you're seeing all these pictures and you want to do that. And I want to know whether or not you have the capacity to do that. And if you don't, I want to suggest really, really good strategies to either get you there over several years or do something high impact that you can afford as part of your strategy. And so it always amazes me, you know, I've been in this business for 20 years and that's still the big issue in this industry. Yeah. And I think even on like a longer scale there too, like sometimes clients are like, well, I want to do a multi-day. Okay, sure. But you can also do it in one day and like we can chop it up or 
vice versa, you know, like if they say like, but we want to just do one long day. Well, then let's just do two shorter days if if you want. Save yourself the overtime. Yeah, exactly. So I think that kind of goes back to that whole educational portion that a lot of clients don't really think about and, and are just like, oh, well, then, okay, so I pay for 12 hours. Mm, yes, but 12 hours means load in. <laughs> the only arrive and then you pay the 12 hours stops when they leave, not when the show ends. So I think that's always an interesting portion. But yeah, money is interesting in terms of budget. But even then asking a client when they're late with paying, you're like, excuse me, I'm not asking you to transfer your salary to me. I'm just asking you to walk over to to finance and say, hey guys, you're late with an invoice. Can you just please process it? Absolutely. So let's talk about technologies that you're currently using and that you've been using over the last couple of years. How are you encouraging the use of technology and immersive experiences at your events? Yeah. So also technology is kind of interesting. We're not uh, that far yet in AI, I want to say. I mean, obviously we definitely use it. And I think I'm curious to see like how other live event companies have kind of go around this of like, okay, well, yeah, we use ChatGPT. Even that is almost like, ooh, you use ChatGPT? And we're like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's there. Or even like now for us, when we create concepts, my business partner was working on like getting renders and he really just typed in a whole prompt and he got like this amazing visual. And I think even that, it helps us sell our concept to a client. Of course, we still work with with 3D designers because as we build a set, you need people that are skilled to do that. But the in-between portion of it from going, presenting a concept with moods, and now we can actually present it with a AI render that can actually show what we want to create. That's an amazing step because for a client to sometimes understand things with a mood, they're like, yeah, but I don't like that red candle that was in that mood. It was a mood. Like it's not, we're not doing that. I think now that we can use AI and we can use this portion of like getting better visuals across to a client and sell our concept is huge. Like that's amazing. So that's like on our creative level. And then I think when you look at like even running our shows, there's so much development there, even on like media servers and things like that. I remember one of the first shows that we did in China. We had like the, the media servers there. Oh, watch out. I don't remember. Oh, watch out. Yeah, I haven't used yeah, that. I mean, years. watch it years ago. And then you had to have this like special watch out operator and only one person could do it. And then it at some point became D3 and then disguise and things like that. Right. And I think that's where it's also amazing to see that portion of technology development because it makes the whole programming way easier. Like for us, I remember sitting like a whole night next to a watch operating programming his timeline and then, oh my God, and then we're crashing, like all of these things. And now like running a show, you can pre-program all the lights, you can pre-program all of your content, you can do virtual previews with clients. I was just explaining that as well to a client where I was like, yeah, we can pre-program everything. And then we just walk through it. You can save money on a rental of a venue because we can do a large portion of rehearsals kind of with you that you can see all the lighting cues on a virtual set. So that's all pretty cool innovations that I really like that technology has changed in the past couple of years and has especially made that kind of insight for a client easier where it then actually makes our work easier because we don't have to lose so much time on like rehearsals when we're on site that they have the feeling that they see it for the first time. I really liked your sort of contextualization of AI to make that buyer journey for your client. Uh, easier, right? And like all 
companies in this industry, we all sort of struggle with the idea of like putting together a budget, putting together a concept. And back to the days where we were like Googling images of like cool red table with gold chairs and trying to slam that into a PDF to send to a client to say, hey, this is what we're going to look like. And then the whole idea in the business of when that rendering technology became more accessible, now we ran into a part of the business or a challenge for the business where you were then investing all this money ahead of time to try and go after that piece of business. And a tool like MidJourney or any of those AI image generators, I think are an amazing tool where you can literally type in like big car reveal at the LA convention center and the main color is blue and it will spit out like five or six. Don't get me wrong. They're imperfect and they still need a lot of human input, but something that you could just pull some inspirational images to be able to show your client and say, we generated 50 images. We picked these four because we think they are the best ones to inspire us to go forward. Sign on the dotted line. And I think that for companies like ours makes it so much easier and more efficient for us to go after that business. So I'm totally stealing that from you. I hope you realize. <laughs> so where do you think the industry is going to go in the next five years? Huh, I hope it goes sky high and that no one stops and that everybody is just opening up their marketing budgets. No, yeah, I think we really had to kind of come back from like pandemic where people were still like shy on like spending money, right? Definitely the US is an interesting market where I feel that there's a lot of money for a lot of like marketing budgets. So that's at least really good. I think the live element will always stay. Like even if we look at, at our festivals where we produce certain areas how much people love to sit somewhere and get this experience. I don't think that that's replaceable in all honesty. I think that's also even when it was pandemic, when we had other companies really focusing on virtual events, we were like, you know what? That's not really our thing. Like we will focus a bit more on video production. And I think then now in the next five years, yeah, LA is going to be super exciting. So I was mentioning World Cup, Olympics. There's so much happening now here. We're finally getting maybe a airport that will function, <laughs> but that would be super nice. But yeah, I think in terms of events, like developmentally, I think it will run a bit, a bit faster with this whole AI portion of it, where I think even like programming shows will all get faster, like all of those technologies that I maybe don't see every day. But once we then have a new show, they're like, hey, but you know what? There's this and this software. And we're like, oh, OK, cool. Well, let's try it out. Or like, let's test this out. It's going to stay. And I love that every time there's a new innovation, there's some new technology that we can then actually use and that can actually then give also the audience a different experience every time. Like the idea for us is not to do what other companies do. So honestly, next five years going to be cool. They're going to be great. So that's kind of how I see it. We're definitely here. We have good plans for the next five years and we're really working on like getting a bit more of retainers so we can actually educate those clients and that we can then actually like grow them to that point as well. And then when they know everything, they go to someone else. But hey, that's fine. It's like with children when they move out of the house. Yeah, absolutely. I have two at home right now that they can move out any day. I'd be happy with that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I want to just jump on two thoughts that you inspired. One was, and this little note that I put down, when we're talking about you had mentioned that the marketing dollars being spent on events and there's an interesting competition going on 
between sort of digital marketing and content marketing and event marketing and the portion of the marketing budgets being spent on live events or or event strategy. So Gartner just came out with their event industry study for the marketing agency world. And I think the number was that in 2023, it was only 12% of global marketing budgets were spent on events, which I, I think is just an amazing growth opportunity because that if we start to factor in the, you know, ChatGPT is only about a year old, that language model, and look at how much change it has made, that somebody said to me the other day that it has eroded trust in marketing, especially in the B2B space, where that in contrast, events are about trust. When all of this AI content is being churned out on marketing digital channels, that events end up being the one place where you can genuinely connect with that brand more than any way that you could possibly through an ad. And then another statistic that I just want to throw at you and get your thoughts on was somebody pointed out the other day that 95% of decisions made by a consumer or a brand are made on an emotional level. And if that is true, then try to think of the last time a digital ad stirred you to emotion. And that's the role that live and experiential has in those sales. And I just thought those were really interesting thoughts. I think we should work together with digital marketing. There's no way around it 100%. But I also think this component to live, nothing beats live. Even if you go and shop, like okay, people can maybe hate shopping, but if you're shopping for, say, a wedding dress, I don't think anybody does this online. Like people want to feel it. They want to see it. And I know this is totally nothing to do with like live events, but it is this moment of that you want this experience and you want to feel like you want to go through it. And I think that's where, yeah, even for us in terms of live, like digital is not taking over. And why are so often companies or even agencies scared that digital is going to take over? Certain brands will do way better on digital because they see an immediate return on investment. They see data. They see, okay, we got a peak here and here because we did this in this video or commercial or campaign or whatsoever. Then we come in with event marketing and then a client is like, okay, where's my return on investment? I can show you that data. Like it's people that arrived. They had an amazing experience. Sure. We've had it in China where we did a introduction for a new Bentley GTV8 and we sold 12 cars on that one evening, 12 cars are like $300,000. But hey, this is China. The, the target audience that was there was 18 to 26, and they had all this money. So I think, sure. And of course, there's return on investment that we can show. Of course, there's data that we can show too. But the whole point of doing live is where you create your brand loyalty. You create that brand connection. You create that community. Of course, you can create a community on digital too. But I really feel that there are still so many clients that really thrive in the live section and that should also really see that. And I think sometimes it just gets taken for granted because you don't see that data and everybody loves data. Everybody eats up data, right? So it's way easier if you can see, oh, if I give something to 20 influencers and they can post stuff, sure, it will see how many clicks and blah, blah, blah. Like you see all of that. And then we do a product launch and we have press, yeah, you see publication or things like that, but you don't immediately know 
where your peak came from because oftentimes they run a digital campaign at the same time. And then often, of course, the digital team is like, yes, because we ran this campaign. (laughs) It's interesting on the digital side that it's so data heavy, but not necessarily meaning heavy. Yeah, and not emotion. Yeah. And on the events industry side, like we're all about the emotion and the community building and and the impact. But I find that the entire industry is still not 100% solid on how they report that metric. And so I get it from a CMO's point of view that they're sitting there going, well, I got $3 billion to spend on everything marketing. And if I give 75% of it to this department, they will come back in a month and tell me there was this many clicks, there was this much engagement. LinkedIn sent us a bunch of messages about how engaged our audience is. But if I try to give the same amount of money to an event management or an event producer, and it's across the board, I think we still struggle with it to be able to quantify it in a meaningful way that's driven by data. And if you're listening to this podcast, we'll have a special episode with the creator of SBX Academy here in Canada, which is Sponsorship X. And they do an annual report. And in all of the data that you're reporting from the industry, the one thing that everybody is lacking in sponsorship activation and sponsorship marketing was those key metrics. And that has been in the report for 10 years now. And so it's an interesting sort of dichotomy in the industry to try and figure out like, well, how do we quantify that emotion? How do we quantify that impact? Because instinctually as event professionals, I think we all get it. We all know. I think your example of the automotive event in China is unique that I can point to $1.3 million in car sales that happened that day, but there's more long-term impact and long-term return from inviting a thousand people to your user conference and whether or not that's going to influence a buying decision in six months, right? Yeah, well, our client Fisker, they they really do so many test drives because they actually say we close a lot of deals after those test drives. So they really invest a lot of money in those. They now want to elevate that experience. And I think that's where I get it that they actually close deals when people get into their cars, because that's what you want. You want to experience a car and you want to get enthusiastic. And if you then have good salespeople, they're like, Hey, you know what? Let's just order it. And then you're with your, yeah, your husband or your wife or whatsoever. And you're like, you know what? Yeah, let's just do it. Let's put down the down payment and let's just order this car. I think that's not a live event, but that shows that experience something live still does a lot to people. And especially when you look at like the brand building portion, the brand loyalty, having people connected to your brand, I think that part really is this portion of life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're just running out of time. I always like to finish these conversations with a practical step. We have a lot of event professionals listening to this podcast. So what sort of practical steps would you give to anybody listening on how they can build some of that creative process? start to concentrate on that elevated production value as you've pointed out? Well, I think a big thing is that you need to stick to what you want. And even for us in the past eight years, it's hard when you run a business. So I think that's also where people just need to be open about it. And they should just say, hey, you know what? It doesn't come like if you go around the corner, here it is. No, it's like you have to stay focused. You have to focus on what you want and you have to kind of keep going after it. And I think that's like a very big element. Like even if I look at myself from the past couple of years, I tend to sometimes go off of that kind of like 
you know, focus point that you have. Well, there's something very shiny over there that's very attractive. Yeah, like exactly. And you're like, woo, but maybe that and that client or, you know, this and this or whatsoever. And I think that's where, sure, it can happen. But kind of going back to when you were asking about a mission statement and going back to that, having that clear description of your company, having that clear understanding on what you want and how you want to get there, that's super, super important. And I know it sounds almost like, yeah, duh, of course. But I bet if you would now do almost like a survey, I'm curious how many people would be like, yeah, oh my God, yeah. Have I actually been focusing on that thing that I really want? Or have I just kind of been running my day-to-day business and my things that I just wanted to do? So I think that's kind of where my biggest thing is. We really spend a lot of time on that, on making sure that like we stay on track We do a lot of internal reviews. We actually include really our team in those reviews too. We look at our teams together with like the goals that we have financially, but also with what type of clients we want. And that's where I also feel like you can do it alone. And even with other companies like us, even having this conversation, there's probably a lot of companies that are like, oh no, I don't want to talk to anybody else in the business. And there's like, you can't eat alone. Like there's enough business for all of us. We can learn from each other and we can really make sure that we all grow together. So those are my two takeaways. Yeah, absolutely. I could talk to you for hours about all of what you just said about companies needing to talk to each other and be a little bit more vulnerable, but it's only one podcast. We'll, we'll have you on again. So if anybody wants to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah. Okay. So our website is theverycreativefirm.com and my email is Francisca. It's a very long name, but it probably will be in the podcast description. Francisca at theverycreativefirm.com, but you can find me on LinkedIn, even on socials if you want. Yeah, please reach out. Like, honestly, we're always here to help and listen, even if it's companies that have questions on like how to do business or other things in terms of what you were saying, how does your progress go whatsoever. I'm absolutely not shy in helping people or in being open about how to run a business. And then also creatively, or if there's clients listening, we're always here. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Francisca. I really enjoyed having you on the show. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. And have a great day. Thank you. Production Value Matters, the business event podcast is brought to you by Burn Production Services. To find out more about Burn Production Services and how putting on events can drive value for your business, visit burnproductionservices.com. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And on behalf of the team here at Production Value Matters, thank you so much for listening.